Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 26. Today I'm going to be sharing a message that I put together for a group of men at our church. Um, and I do feel that it's very relevant to God's people globally. And so um, I do want to take time to, to share that. Uh, I think it will bless your heart. Uh, hopefully it will stimulate you to go down a path with the Lord uh, in seeking Him in new and fresh ways. Uh, so before I jump in, though, I want to appreciate everyone who uh, continues to come along with me on this ride and journey. I'm still blown away by how God expands it, the the reach of going across many countries that I would never have the opportunity to uh, explore uh, and visit. So I just thank you all for for coming along. Um, I pray that this spreads. God uses it, multiplies it for his glory. Uh, this is nothing that uh, I have to offer outside of what he has graced me the opportunity to share. So I uh, thank you. So today, this is the message, I guess, would be titled Fanning the Fire of Devotion. In my journey and transformation, which I will eventually share through this message, but if there's one thing that I would genuinely just give my life to proclaim, it is the importance and impact that a life of devotion, nearness, and intimacy with and to God. Um, if there has been one thing that has transformed my dynamic in Christianity, it would be this place of experiencing God in in intimacy, in realness, and then the byproduct of that, of devotion. So, um, I hope this blesses you. This is called Fanning the Fire of Devotion. So, first off, it's important to define devotion. Devotion to God is not just doing the right things. Devotion to God will produce right living, but that is a secondary consequence of the devoted heart. The best that I know how to define devotion to God is a whole heart commitment to valuing God's fellowship, friendship, and fatherhood. Devotion is an undivided heart. In both a secular and church culture, devotion is often measured by performance, by behavior. We identify ourselves and others 
based on how well they're doing. Let's look at a marriage between a woman and a man. If both people are fully devoted to one another, how much dysfunction do you think is present? Sure, there will be some opportunities because we all have flesh, but if the commitment to one another is wholehearted in terms of fellowship, friendship, and family, how healthy will this marriage be? When I think on devotion, there are two contrary positions to devotion. First, the polar opposite, which can be a word that we find in the Bible called enmity. Enmity is a fancy word that basically means hostility. We see this word used in Genesis 3.15 when God was pronouncing judgment against the devil in the garden. He says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So this is where the dynamic of Satan as enemy was birthed. God said, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. This word enmity comes from the same Latin root word as enemy. Now, the second position, and I consider this to be even more dangerous than hostility, is apathy and complacency. This is actually a position that many in the church find themselves in this very day. Apathy means lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Complacency is a satisfaction with how things are and lacking the interest to make things better. Complacency is absent growth. And I believe that desire is what gives devotion legs. See, desire is what fights against apathy and complacency. Desire gives sustainability to devotion. I can remember remember all the years of hot and cold, up and down in my relationship to God. I also remember that when I lived according to my desires, the desires of my flesh, it made it impossible to maintain a heart of devotion to God. Compromise robbed me of devotion, which made my desire flat and frustrating. I wanted to want the right things. I wanted to want right more than wrong. There were times I tried really hard to check all of the right boxes. 
boxes like read my Bible every day, pray at the end of the day, remember to repent of sin, go to church. I tried to do all of the things for a while. It never lasted. It was forced, dull, and lacking. It lacked encounter. During those days, I had several moments of intimacy with God in conversation through writing where I would write and he would answer. It was almost a, it was a dialogue, really. And this, this occurred in several times spanning across nearly 10 years. Moments in time, and these moments like those, marked me briefly, but it lacked steam, and I was back to disinterested. I was back to my old ways of living for my flesh. It was 2018 when I had my path-changing experience. I couldn't tell you what the church message was about or the songs that were sang, but as it happened, I visited uh, church one day and something happened to me from that day forward that I can only describe as a heart transplant. The first thing that I remember being marked by was a hunger and a thirst to know more of God. You might could even call it a curiosity to know Him. And as I sought Him, I began to hear an internal voice that I would document, I would write it down, I would reflect on it. And this snowball began to roll downhill and grew larger and larger. And I began to have encounters with the Holy Spirit, began to learn of worship and the intensity there is available inside of it. And not only intensity, but the passion, the, the desire, all of the expressions of things that you love and enjoy. I, f I discovered those things inside of worship. And this actually occurred even in moments of, of being alone at home. This is where some of the most formative encounters with God began to take shape. You know, my family would leave and go visit, visit friends or be off to run errands. And I would just steal away with, with God. There were times when I would, would have music playing and there were some times when I wouldn't. And, and both encounters um, were faithful to be immensely impacting. I'm thankful for, for music and worship music and what, what there is available inside of it. But I also discovered the, the encounter of silence and speaking with God and just encountering His presence. 
So I began to learn of worship and what is available inside of it. Hearing the voice of God internally, this was no audible voice. This was an internal voice. Hearing his voice became a regular occurrence. And I began the journey of seeking to obey him in the moment. And I'm still on that journey. Fast forward a little. And my intensity when I first began to seek God actually became a very troubling dynamic in my marriage, which had been already salvaged by God because I had thrown it away numerous times through adultery, sexual addictions, But when God transformed me, I became a lot to process for my wife. And this became the topic of many arguments and conflict. You know, my wife, she prayed for me for years that God would redeem me and bring me back as I was as wayward as one could be, living only for the desires that I um, wanted and uh, desired. And... As I said, this became a a topic of my intensity, became a, a, an issue, arguments, very frequently and quite intense, I would also add. Now, I recall one conversation outside. I was on the porch alone with God. And by this point, I was I was really in a, a dark night of the soul, if you will. And our relationship, my wife and I, our relationship was really strained because of this. And I remember telling God that I'm worried that she may divorce me. This was getting so intense. Now, I hope you have ears to hear this because it's marked me ever since. But I told God I was worried that she may divorce me. And he said to me, what does it matter? You are married to me. Now, that can be hard for some people to hear and accept, but it's a truth that resounds deep inside my spirit. First and foremost, I am a bride to Christ. 1,000 other issues are resolved by keeping that singular truth central to everything that you say, that you do, that you are. You are a bride to Christ. This is applicable only to children of God. Song of Solomon 7.10 says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, a lot of people see Song of Solomon as, you know, this poetry, as symbolism, um, just uh, literature that we can learn lessons from. And those are all great things. Uh, I agree with all of them. But, But it's also... It is a love letter between God, between Christ, Jesus Christ, and his beloved people. 
And so in Song of Solomon 7.10, we read, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So the million dollar question is, how do I fix broken desire for or so that it can empower devotion? That's what I've been alluding to in throughout this is desire gives legs to devotion. Desire is what enables a solid devotion. And so you ask, and I would ask, well, how do I fix broken desire so that it can empower devotion? And I asked a question similar to this after my transformation for nearly six months. My question was, what happened so that I can tell others how to experience what I experienced? I was, this was something that I was seeking an answer from God for. And for nearly six months, I could not get to that answer. One day, God told me, you can't understand it because you didn't do it. That's deeply profound. You can't understand it because you didn't do it. Profound but simple. So what could I pass on in terms of wisdom to others who want this same thing? And this is, this is what I would share. You cannot make it happen. Nor are you able to accomplish lasting change. You can't make it happen and you can't keep it happening. So how disarming is that? How insignificant does that make you feel? I know if I was hearing this for the first time, I would say it's very disarming and it makes me feel very insignificant and that's good. That's the thing that we need to be reminded of, that we are incapable. But that is what pushes us. God's strength is made perfect in weakness, and we are very weak. So his strength and our weakness are so united, they're like pieces of a puzzle that fit together so perfectly and intricately. But what you can do is ask God to give you a new heart, a new mind, new desires, new cravings, and trust that what you're asking is his will and he will bring it about. We, we have to fix our gaze upon him. And then over time, you become what you behold. I'm going to say that again because that is, that's a deeply significant statement. Over time, you become what you behold. Think about what all that you let in through your eyes, things that we, we, we see as we walk through this life, 
things that we sit down to, that we watch, that we invite in through the gate of our eyes. There's so many things in this life that are competing for our gaze. And like the prodigal son who is wayward and living for his own desires. He is, he finds himself in this uh, destitute, this poverty-stricken place, and he is eating what is left over from the feeding of pigs. And so we often, like this wayward son, feed on things that have no value, that actually can do us much harm. And you don't just feed with your mouth, you actually feed with your eyes. And the fruit of that feeding will come out of the mouth. What's in a man's heart, he will speak, he will say. So what things that are coming out of our mouth actually are revealing what's inside. And what gets inside comes through, through the gate of our eyes and through our ears. We hear things, we see things. What are we exposing ourselves to? Because whatever we fix our gaze upon, we become. So we have to fix our gaze. Over time, you will become what you behold. Now, we don't get better at dealing with sin by trying harder. This is a very common misconception in our lives. We hear it very frequently, you know, how, how much that we fall short. We see this in our, in our lives on a day-to-day basis. We experience how much we fall short. And, and I think when we think we can get to where we want to be by just trying a lot harder, we actually fall into this cycle of futility and discouragement. And then the devil will actually use that to uh, guilt, shame, and condemn us. And then we fall, if we're not careful, we'll fall into this place where we're like, I'm, this is just who I am. This is just what I'm going to be. And, and I, I just don't have it in me to keep trying. And that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. I was listening to a man uh, named Eric Ludy, and and he was talking about how we are to to guard uh, breaches in our lives. A breach is like a hole, an entry point. You know, when you're in a home, you have a you have windows open and it's cold outside. Well, the the cold air is going to get in the home. The home is meant to be temperature controlled. It's not meant to be cold um, if you don't want it to be. And so when we leave doors and windows open, we allow what's outside to be inside. Now, this is very important for leaders of homes, men and women, to understand. What you as a leader of your home, what you allow in, falls upon your shoulders. And what's not meant 
to be occurring can be occurring because you haven't guarded the openings. And so what we need to do is, like the homeowner, shut the windows and close the doors. We need to be diligent of guarding those open spaces, and we need to allow God to reveal to us if we don't already know. Many, many of you already know. I myself already know areas that I need to address. But if something isn't um, already clear to you, then ask God to show you those breaches, those open places in your life that you need to shut and don't give the enemy access. Because that's that is that's how that's how sneaky he is. It's, he tests those windows and doors and to see what is open, where is an access point. And, and he may be outside of those windows and doors, tempting you, showing you things that seem appealing and exciting and interesting. And as you begin to play that little back and forth before long, that door windows completely open and you're in this place where you never thought you would be. And, after you make that step of beyond the line, then the devil, where he was alluring you and tempting you with how good this could be, after you've crossed that line, he then says, you know, look at one. You are a hypocrite. Who do you think you are? And there's this back and forth. It's, he flips the script. He tempts you and entices you, and then he condemns you. And so um, this, is, this was not part of the plan, but I think that this is critical for so many of us um, that we experience on a daily basis. But it's important to remember that we don't, we don't get better at dealing with sin by just trying harder. I've for years tried harder to deal with deficiencies in my life with sin. And I've tried harder only to experience failure after failure after failure because my my flesh was so strong and my my spiritual life had not been um exercised I was weak. My being led by the Spirit was weak, and my flesh was very strong. So you get into the cycle of futility, and so then you fall into the trap of, you know, this is pointless. It's not going anywhere. I can't do it. And you're right in saying that you cannot do it. That is where we have to get to the place of, I can't do this. And sometimes I believe that God puts us in those places of destitution um, because if he permitted us to get out of these places on our own strength, then it would actually be detrimental to us because we it would foster this attitude of, I can do it. I don't need God. I was able to accomplish this. So, 
it's actually for our good that we scrape the bottom of the barrel. So when we realize that we're not getting better at dealing with sin, we actually get better at dealing with it by surrendering more fully to God's influence in our lives and feeding on heavenly bread that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm going to say that again. We get better at dealing with sin, not by trying harder, but by surrendering more fully to God's influence in our lives and by feeding on heavenly bread that is Jesus Christ. We have to fix our eyes on the one whose eyes burn like fire. John saw that in Revelation. And then by locking gaze with his eyes that burn like fire, we will find ourselves over the course of some time ignited also by that fire. And then you will become one who burns. And then you become one who sets fires for the kingdom of God. See, time at his feet in nearness, in proximity, fixing your gaze upon him, this increases desire, which fixes devotion, which puts away apathy and complacency and invites you on a journey of discovering God in ways that you never imagined possible. I'm reminded of Mary and Martha. Martha, busy serving, busy doing. We need people who serve and do. But Martha is bitter and jealous over Mary's position. What was Mary's position? She was seated at his feet. And what was Jesus' words to Martha? <laughs> you are concerned about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better thing, and I will not let you take it away from her. This is the one thing that is needful. There's a lot of things that are good. There's a lot of things that have impact, that can have purpose, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen it. What is it? At his feet. At his feet shows and speaks to us of nearness, of proximity, of interest, of hanging on every word that he says. I, I'm also reminded of the scene when Jesus first steps into, maybe we could say his calling. He's, he's before the, the synagogue. He takes the scroll. He reads from it, which this in itself is deeply profound because who is this guy that's standing up here who is speaking uh, in the place of these learned rabbis and Pharisees and religious scholars. He stands up and he takes this scroll of Isaiah and he quotes from it. And, and as he says it, 
I just picture everyone's gaze is locked in on him. It's so quiet there, you could hear a pin drop in the room because there is electricity in the air. It is electrified and people are in awe and wonder, shocked by the words that are coming out of this man's mouth. Isn't this uh, Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph? Who is this person? But there is something that's coming out of his mouth that's hitting us in the place of the heart. And it is and it is confusing our mind. They are hanging on his words as he utters the words of the prophet Isaiah. And they are hanging upon it. He doesn't speak like those who have spoken before. There is something that they cannot tangibly feel, but there's something that's hitting them in the place of their soul and spirit that uh, words do not put to paper. And I think this is the attitude, this is the posture that we need so that we can encourage and foster desire, which leads to devotion. And when we live day by day, connected to God, following the prompting, the leading, the teaching, the instructing of the Holy Spirit, paying attention to that internal voice like a, like a detective looking through clues, like a gold miner, a prospector sifting through the sand and the dirt, letting the water rinse through to reveal those nuggets of gold. We too must use uh, great care, great intentionality to foster that time. We live in a day that is uh, challenging at best and at worst, extremely discouraging. But we can't let the outside noise detract us from the thing that the Lord wants to whisper to each and every one of us. So I just invite you to come away with him to places that you've never known, but that you felt possible. I just uh, envision him wrapping his arms around us at the top of a mountain peak and spinning us around like a child in the arms of their father. And he desires to have that relationship with each and every one of us. He is great God, most high, greater than any other name that is given or known among men. He is greater. He is righteous and holy. But he is and can be approachable father who is eager to let you crawl into his lap and lay your head upon his chest like John did with Jesus. So if you have not given over the throne of your heart to Jesus. Now is the time. Now is the time. Do not delay. 
There's no fancy words. There's no, there's no repeat after me business. It is simply you being finished, being done with self and posturing your heart and making a decision with the mind that he gave you to say, I surrender who I am and what I am. And I want to follow Christ. I want to subject my life to his leadership. Realize that in yourself, you are, you are capable of nothing. And in yourself, you are deserving of punishment and judgment. But when we surrender our hearts to him and follow him, we deny self, we follow him. Yes, there will be a cross that, that we all bear in some form or fashion. But when we deny ourselves, follow after Jesus, we can have confidence that he has taken us into his family and we begin the journey of a life devoted to God. So I thank you, Lord, for this word of encouragement, of reminding. I pray that you use it and multiply it, that it be more than words, that the Holy Spirit would would kiss it, would breathe upon it and breathe life into that which is, which is gone, which is absent. I give you praise and glory for it is only in the name of Jesus Christ that we can do anything. Amen. I would trade a million lifetimes for